Have you not considered how God dealt with Aad, or with Aram of the lofty pillars, the likes of which had never been created in the lands, and with Tamud, who carved out the rocks in the valley, all of them oppressed within their lands, and increased therein the corruption, and thus God poured upon them a scourge of punishment. The Quran, Surah 89, verses 6 through 14. The Arabian Peninsula, 1916. Born out of scandal, Thomas Edward Lawrence had always been an outcast. His unmarried father had ran off with the family governess, Lawrence's mother, and had abandoned his original wife and children. In Victorian England, this was basically the kiss of death as far as society was concerned, and young Ned was branded as a bastard, unfit for marriage. Ned chose to walk the path of a scholar, cataloging and researching the many religious buildings in his town, and even impressing the local university with his knowledge. It was no surprise to anyone when he developed a keen interest in archaeology, specifically Middle Eastern history. He learned Arabic and slowly began to venture outside the confines of England, which I doubt he missed much. Then, World War I happened. All of Europe and portions of the Middle East were thrown into conflict. The Ottoman Empire, which, to oversimplify things, was the predecessor to the modern state of Turkey, was one of many belligerents whose spiderwebs of alliances led them into battle against the United Kingdom. The British military decided to make good use of Lawrence, who was already becoming something of a respected archaeologist, by using him as a cover for secret operations across enemy lines. The English had already been making overtures to the Arabian Kingdom of Hejaz, and so Lawrence was dispatched to Mesopotamia to help support an emerging Arab revolt to take back their lands from Ottoman incursion. Lawrence's role in this conflict was to serve as a liaison between two very distinct and proud kingdoms, as well as provide military strategy and advisory. Amiable and genuinely interested in the Arabian world, Lawrence made friends in high places, namely Sharif Hussein and his sons, the leaders of the revolution. It helped Lawrence that he dressed like a local, spoke the language, and was happy to participate in Arab customs. At some point during his adventures, Lawrence came into the company of a like-minded countryman from back home, a fellow named Bertram Thomas. Thomas had worked as an advisor to the Sultan of Muscat and Oman, and while working at the pleasure of the Sultan, Thomas had accomplished something no European at that point in history had ever done before. He had traversed the Ruba Akali Desert, known to the English as the Empty Quarter. It was a stretch of vast wasteland, miles and miles of scorched sand dunes, completely inhospitable to life. But while traveling this desolate region, Thomas heard stories from his Bedouin guides that this had not always been the case. The Bedouin, a nomadic people of the desert whose population spreads across the Middle East and North Africa to this day, had a rich history of oral folklore and a great knowledge of the area. While traveling on camel through the desert, one of Thomas's guides pointed to an ancient track imprinted in the sands. Look, Sahib, he said to Thomas, there is the way to Ubar. It was a great city, our fathers have told us, that existed of old, a city rich in treasure, with date gardens and a fort of red silver. 
It now lies buried beneath the sands in the Ramlat Shu'a'it, some few days to the north. Hearing of this fabled place, Thomas immediately drew a parallel to the lost city of the Greeks and started referring to Ubar as the Atlantis of the Sands. And throughout Bertram Thomas's journeys across the desert, different locals he'd spoken with referenced the place called Ubar, an ancient city of unfathomable wealth, until its rulers incurred the wrath of God. For seven days and seven nights, a monstrous sandstorm assaulted the city, burying its wicked inhabitants alive and sinking Ubar into the depths of the desert. Where, so they said, it remained, waiting. The Quran speaks of a city with towering pillars called Iram that earned the enmity of God and was likewise punished. This story, as well as Arabian oral folklore, spawned the idea of an Atlantis of the Sands, alternatively called Ubar, Wabar, and Aram. Tales of lost cities were not unknown to the Arab-speaking world. One of the most famous compendium of stories, The 1001 Nights, features several examples. The framing device behind this extensive collection of stories gives us, arguably, one of the most celebrated heroines of the literary world, Sherazad. Her plight and clever thinking is interwoven throughout the saga. In the 1001 Nights, a jaded sultan kills his wife when he discovers her affair, and decides that every woman he marries must be put to death the following morning, lest she inevitably betray him. So toxic masculinity turned up to 11, essentially. After the sultan exhausts every last eligible maiden in the palace, he turns to his own vizier's daughter. Bashir Azad is not only a resourceful bookworm, but a gifted storyteller who devises an ingenious plan to keep herself alive. Every night she goes to bed with the sultan and tells him a highly engrossing story, whether it be fable, romance, or comedy, and always leaves the sultan on a cliffhanger at the first light of dawn. This ensures that he won't kill her until he hears the story in its entirety. And this pretty much carries on for a thousand nights and a night, as Sherazad weaves spellbinding adventures such as the tales of Aladdin and his lamp, the voyages of Sinbad, and others. In the process, Sherazad not only keeps herself alive, but undoes the Sultan's cruelty, becoming his new, presumably permanent, queen. The 1001 Nights is recognized as one of the most influential literary works of all time, due to it encompassing a wide array of genres, in particular prototypical forms of science fiction and what we might recognize as the modern adventure story. This includes heroes in search of lost treasure. One such story, The Brass City, follows an expedition in search of the biblical King Solomon's sealed genie servants, which are said to turn up from time to time in bottles brought up by fishermen from the waters off of a mysterious coast. 
The protagonists follow the legends to their source and discover a desolate, breathtaking metropolis guarded by clockwork automatons, a city that holds both fantastic wealth, enchanted or technologically advanced machinery, and a warning to those who defy God. The 1001 Nights also elaborates on the Quran's account of Iram of the Pillars, In this story, a man named Abdullah loses his camel in the desert and, while searching for it, stumbles upon an abandoned city so resplendent in architecture, size, and luxury that he initially mistakes it for paradise. Abdullah, or rather Sherazad, paints a fantastical picture for the reader. Now, when I came to the castle, I found it had two vast gates. Never in all the world has seen their size or height. Entering the citadel in a flutter of fear, and dazed with surprise and affright, I found it long and wide, about equaling the city of Medina in point of size. And therein were lofty palaces, laid out in pavilions all built of gold and silver, and inlaid with many-colored jewels and jacinths, and chrysolites and pearls. I looked down from the great roofs of the pavilion chambers and their balconies, and saw rivers running underneath them. And in the main streets were fruit-laden trees and tall palms, and the manner of their building was one brick of gold and one of silver. It's later discovered that this city was created by a king Shaddad, son of the great king Aad. A tablet discovered by Abdullah offers up the explanation that the city was destroyed by God for some sort of blasphemy, either from non-belief or the sheer audacity of a mortal king trying to create an image of paradise on earth. Of note, the Quran mentions that Iram was a city associated with a people or tribe called the Aad, perhaps related to this ancient king mentioned in the 1001 Nights. Iram, therefore, may have been their capital. Alternatively, historians and folklorists point to the lost city's name of Ubar as being the name of a tribe that may have once existed in that area. In Thomas Bertram's footnotes on the subject, he says, The place is generally defined as lying in the sands between Shahir and Sana. It was a great city and a fertile oasis belonging to the tribe of Aad, and its inhabitants were punished for their sins by being turned into Naznas, a kind of monkey with only half a body, one eye, one arm, one leg, and so on. Since then, it has been inhabited by jinn, who endeavor to prevent approach to it and destroy those who reach it. The South Arabian archaeologist Nashwan bin Said says only, Wabar is the name of the land which belonged to Aad in the eastern parts of Yemen. Today, it is an untrodden desert owing to the drying up of its water. There are to be found in it great buildings, which the wind has smothered in sand. The only other ancient text that may be related to Aram is the Geographia, a 2nd century atlas created by the famous Greek mathematician and geographer Claudius Ptolemy. This guide was one of the most extensive and detailed maps of the Roman Empire and outlying civilizations for several hundred years. Unfortunately, the earliest surviving copy of the Geographia only goes as far back as the 13th century, and it's known that other geographers added and subtracted to Ptolemy's work as copies were produced over the years. On certain versions of the Geographia, there is a place marked down in the empty quarter called Omanum Emporium, or the market city of Oman. It was believed that the cities of Arabia Felix, or Fortunate Arabia as ancient Yemen and Oman were once called, were part of an extensive network of frankincense trade, the Omanum Emporium being a major hub on this network. 
The problem with this is that they call it the empty quarter for a very good reason. There's hardly any water and no fertile land found throughout the wasteland region. It's unlikely that a city of such magnitude could have ever taken hold there. Modern historians argue that the Ruba Alkali has been unsustainable to permanent human occupation for over 6,000 years. However, the Romans called the region Arabia Felix because, at the time, frequent rainstorms were known to create arable land. It wasn't until 300 Common Era that desertification, such as the towering sand dunes we recognize there today, made the region so inhospitable and treacherous. The Rubat al-Khali stretches across several countries, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Oman, and the United Arab Emirates, and almost all of them have laid claim to the legend of the lost city of the desert. Aside from legend and lore, there was no documented speculation as to whether or not the city actually existed until the 1930s. After Bertram Thomas relayed the story to T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence began to look into the matter himself, intent on trying to locate the city by means of a plane or zeppelin. He'd been told by a group of Bedouins that they occasionally chanced across the ruins of the city of King Aad of Ubar, which sometimes materialized out of the shifting sands. This specific motif was echoed by horror author H.P. Lovecraft. Inspired by the tale of Aram in the 1001 Nights, his short story, The Nameless City, envisions a doomed civilization of eldritch abominations somewhere in the Arabian desert. In his notes on the story, he mentions Aram, which yet, after the annihilation of its tenants, remains entire, so Arabs say, invisible to ordinary eyes, but occasionally, and at rare intervals, revealed to some heaven-favored traveler. All of these varied accounts sounded like the stuff of legend, except that less than a century prior to Thomas and Lawrence's adventures in the desert, European adventurers uncovered a truly remarkable an arguably abandoned city within that same geographic region of the world. Built into the sides of a sandstone gorge, the ancient city of Petra, or Rachmu, served as the capital of the Nabataean civilization for hundreds of years. It had been used as a residence since the Bronze Age, at which point the largely nomadic Nabataeans made it the seat of their civilization. In ancient times, the Nabataeans controlled Petra as a major trading hub, until it was taken over by the Romans in the first century of the Common Era. Though it existed, even after its fall for hundreds of years, it wasn't looked upon by European eyes until it was documented by Swiss adventurer Johann Ludwig Burckhardt in 1812. In pop culture, the Petra structure known as the Treasury makes a famous appearance in the climax of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, serving as the location of the Holy Grail. Non-visual mediums like podcasts don't really do justice to the descriptions of beautiful, intricate complexes like Petra, but I imagine anybody coming across it in the midst of the desert, ignorant of its existence up until that point, would likely feel as if they had just discovered a lost world. But Petra was well known to the Arab and Roman spheres, and it had never been conflated with Iram of the Pillars. However, the same verse of the Quran that mentions Iram compares the fate of the lost city to another doomed populace, the tribe of Tamud. The Tamudi nomenclature is a bit confusing. The Quran does not make reference to the people known historically as the Nabataeans, but rather names them after the Tamudi region instead. In the Quran, it is said that a place called Al-Hija, or the Stonelands, was visited by the prophet Salah, who preceded Muhammad. 
It is said that Sala warned the Tamudis against idolatry and the subjugation of their fellow men, but the tribe failed to heed his words, and in three days their city was destroyed by the wrath of God. Earthquakes and lightning bolts befell the populace, who were wiped out overnight. And anybody who knows the story of the downfall of Atlantis might recognize the similarity in these legends. But Alhijra, or as it's more commonly known, Madain Saleh, definitely still exists. Located in Saudi Arabia, it is another Nabataean archaeological wonder that has been populated since the 2nd century. Though the grounds of the site have been utilized by Bedouins for over a thousand years, Madain Saleh wasn't known to the English-speaking world until 1878. However, no evidence of geological unrest or a catastrophe has been uncovered there. It's believed that the city simply fell into a period of decline after the desertification of the area grew widespread, and the forces of Rome began to overtake the region. Since the advent of Islam, Madain Saleh was, and is, still widely regarded as a cursed or forbidden place due to the dark legends surrounding its abandonment. We now turn to Wilfred Thesiger, or Mubarak bin London, who was an Ethiopian-British explorer. Like T.E. Lawrence, Thesiger was well-versed in both British and Arab culture. He was an ally of the Ethiopian royal family and was able to move between English and Arab worlds. After World War II, following in the footsteps of Lawrence, Thesiger began to explore the Ruba al-Khali. In 1946, he came across a rare remote settlement located in the middle of the desert, a small watering hole called Shisir that was sometimes used by Bedouins on their travels. Thesiger described it as where the ruins of a crude stone fort on a rocky eminence marks the position of a famous well. In 1948, a geological expedition was dispatched by the Sultanate of Oman to look for oil in the desert. The party was intrigued by the ruins mentioned by Thesiger and went to go investigate it for themselves, but they found there that the water inside the well was not easily accessible. There were no settlements or houses to be uncovered, and the so-called fortress was a crumbling foundation built into the sides of the cliff. Despite these rather tepid discoveries in Shisir, the legend of an Atlantis of the Sands persisted. And in the early 90s, another expedition set out to try and discover evidence of its existence. In 1992, documentarian Nicholas Clapp read Bertram Thomas's travel memoirs and learned about the late adventurous quest to find the lost city of Ubar. Well acquainted with the desert region already, Clapp began extensive research into the legends and facts. He decided that T.E. Lawrence's theory that the city could be best located via airship had merit. Clapp consulted with NASA and used aerial images taken from the Challenger satellite to see if anything noteworthy such as a convergence of ancient camel tracks, could be found there. The only traces they could find led to the ruins of Shisa. Clapp and his team decided to check out the ruins for themselves, and actually spearheaded a proper excavation. The project was led by archaeologist Dr. Juris Zarens, a specialist in Middle Eastern antiquities and former archaeological advisor to the Department of Antiquities of Saudi Arabia. Rounding out the trio was Rana Fens, one of the last great living explorers and the researcher who first proposed Ptolemy's Omanum Emporium as the Greek name of Ubar. After analyzing Shisa, the team theorized that the crumbling outpost had been built sometime in the last 500 years on top of a far older room 
ruin, containing a fortress structure and a well. These remnants, they believed, were possibly a thousand years old. They found that the site rested above a sinkhole, and that the previous structures there had actually fallen into the earth as the water table receded, or perhaps due to an earthquake. If this older site had been populated at the time of this disaster, a whole city suddenly swallowed up by the desert might have been viewed as a punishment from God and inspired the verses in the Quran. Clapp's team believed that they had uncovered the most approximate candidate for a lost city of Ubar, or Aram. But Dr. Zarin's advised that calling any one specific city Ubar was inaccurate, as the name actually referred to a tribe or region much how as the Quran referred to the area populated by the Nabataeans as the Tamud. In the years following this expedition, consensus is that Clapp and Zarens did make a unique archaeological discovery. But it remains unclear if the ruins at Shisir are really T.E. Lawrence and Bertram Thomas's fabled Atlantis of the Sands. Nowhere in the vicinity of Shisir were any other sites showing prior habitation or trade routes, the real downfall of Shisa as an outpost, it is now believed, was the decline of the incense trade and the continued desertification of the area. Labor simply moved elsewhere, and over time, the site was abandoned. Explorers and archaeologists invested in the mystery of Ubar seem to always run into a lack of historical documentation and a complicated arrangement of legends. Ubar and Aram of the Pillars may in fact be the names of two entirely different cities, and there could be multiple Atlantises of the Sands. Modern scholars also take issue with the concept of Omanum Emporium, and they believe that this may just be an extant city on the coast that was misplaced and misnamed by Ptolemy when he wrote his Geographia. During the Arab Revolution, T.E. Lawrence passed through an area called the Valley of the Moon, a canyon of towering rock formations and remnants of the Nabataean civilization. His description of the valley and its towering formations reminded Lawrence of the finishing semblance of Byzantine architecture, a processional way greater than imagination. The Valley of the Moon is known to the locals as the Valley of Rum, said to be derived from the name Iram. Its most prominent rock formation, once called the Mountain of the Plague, was later named the Seven Pillars of Wisdom after Lawrence's memoir. And notably, these tall rocks do resemble pillars or columns. Is it possible that the bygone Nabataean settlement in the area was the Aram of legend? Unfortunately, there's no evidence in support of, or even against this theory, other than the region's name. While there are rock paintings and ruins of temples located in the valley, there are no major signs of devastation as described in the Quran, and the economic output of the settlements in the Valley of Rum was believed to be negligible, compared to nearby cities such as Petra. After many long battles, including the pivotal fall of Damascus at the end of the Great War, T.E. Lawrence hoped to see the rise of an independent Arabia. But behind his back, the British Empire had other plans, a secret treaty with the French that would grant them shared dominion over the reconquered territory. When Lawrence found out, he was appalled. Having fought alongside the Arabs for years, getting to know them and understanding their need for independence, Lawrence felt like he had just been used, and that he was now betraying his allies. In his memoir, Lawrence laments, 
I had to join the conspiracy and assure the men of their reward. Better we win and break our word than lose. Though he tried to convince his superiors to leave the Hejaz as an autonomous state, they refused. And after the war was won, Lawrence was summoned back to England. T.E. Lawrence refused knighthood and other rewards out of protest, and he even wrote that he wished he could have been killed returning to Damascus rather than live with his guilt. But in the aftermath of the war, Lawrence's exploits reached the ears of authors and journalists who were dazzled by the adventurer's tales of life abroad. Nicknamed Lawrence of Arabia by the press, T.E. hoped to dispel the myths of a savage Arabia and share his stories with the world. He became something of an overnight celebrity, touring the continents and giving lectures, and inspiring a famous 1962 movie starring Peter O'Toole. And speaking of inspiration, it's often believed that T.E. Lawrence was a major influence on George Lucas when he wrote the character of Indiana Jones. On May 19, 1935, T.E. Lawrence was riding his motorcycle when he swerved to avoid two young boys on bikes who had been obscured by the crest of a hill. Despite medical intervention, Lawrence passed away at the age of 46. The outcast boy from England, born out of wedlock, was mourned as a national hero. But even today, it seems like the world fell in love with the idea of Lawrence, and not the man himself. Lawrence's alliance with the Arabs was seen as radical at the time. He was also a defendant of homosexuality and may have even been gay or asexual. Even here in 2020, T.E. Lawrence is hard to define. Was he just a white Englishman appropriating a cultural fantasy who happened to do some good along the way? Or was he an anti-colonialist who was truly on the side of giving Arabia its own autonomy? Lawrence never got a chance to go back to Oman to search for the Atlantis of the Sands, and there's no way to know if he would have been any more successful than anyone else who followed in his footsteps after. If an Aram, or Ubar, or Omanum Emporium is still out there at all, then there's a chance it's been buried under the impenetrable sands of the empty quarter. It could be that the story of Aram was just a parable, a warning against hubris and incurring the wrath of the divine. Or, the tale of the Atlantis of the Sands could be something mortal and relatable, human nature wanting to place civilization where there is only wilderness. Relic is written and narrated by me, Maxwell. If you like this episode and want to bury me in praise, you can rate and review Relic in iTunes. We also have a Patreon that has exclusive episodes, including collaborations with other podcasters and Tales from the Reliquary, which looks at weirder lost treasures that can't really fit a full episode. Connect with me on Twitter at Lost Treasure Pod and email me at LostTreasurePod at gmail.com. Next time, maybe it was aliens. The adventure continues. <laughs>